Let's open our Bibles back up to Isaiah 53, if you closed them. Isaiah 53, and I would like to work on one of the clauses that we have there. Isaiah 53. After preaching to you two weeks ago about the forgiveness of sins and how we're forgiven and what that means when you see the fullness of how the Bible describes and defines forgiveness, I had a good conversation with a young man in our midst, one of your younger brothers, about how satisfying and comforting and strengthening it is to realize that God's forgiveness is not merely a choice to acquit or a choice to pardon or a choice to clear like it would be on the part of our president or a governor if either were to acquit or clear or pardon. Because it's not a choice, just a mere discretionary choice to forgive The assignment has already been made to the Lord Jesus Christ. The conviction was already executed and He was punished in our place. If it were the decision of God to acquit, clear, pardon, or forgive without a sacrifice having been paid, we would wonder, we could wonder, maybe we should wonder if God could reverse that decision and make another decision and put our sins back on us. But our sins were taken from us put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and He was executed in our place. And if you think the U.S. Constitution or that of Canada or a few other nations or the statutes of other nations beyond them in their descriptive phrase, double jeopardy is comforting to you, it is in the sight of God. Because Jesus Christ paid the sacrifice and penalty for our sins once for all, forever in time, and for all the sins of each of His elect, and for all of the elect. There is no double jeopardy because our sins have already been laid upon one, the sentence passed, as we read here in Isaiah 53, and then executed. I want that 11th verse and the first clause, compound clause. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. God shall see of the travail of Christ's soul and God shall be satisfied. This was written by Isaiah 700 years before Christ. Thus it's in the future tense. But to us, it is the past tense. God saw the travail of His soul, and God was satisfied. A glorious text. Let me have a few minutes of your time and some of your attention for this doctrine. If you were to punch it into a Google search, you would have Wikipedia come up and Theopedia, which is a theological dictionary of sorts on the web, And you would find out that the doctrine of the satisfaction of Christ is really the property of some monk or man named Anselm from the 11th century. For some reason, I think it's the doctrine of Isaiah and his beautiful feet 700 years before Christ and taught by the Apostle Paul, in other words, throughout his epistles. 
Brethren, remember that the word salvation means deliverance. Salvation is a rather vague term. It's a broad term. And I'm not making light of it. It's just big, broad, and it's not very specific, and it's not very full of meaning like some of the other words God has given us. And so we have what we call the facets of salvation, because if we're looking at the diamond called salvation, we want to turn it in the light of God's Word and see the different facets there. You know, the the Holy Spirit has chosen to give us a whole string of words for us to realize how great salvation is. He gives us legal terms like justification, representation, forgiveness, pardon, acceptation, and imputation. Those are legal words. They're forensic words. They're words that belong in court. He's given us relational terms like reconciliation, atonement, propitiation, and mediation. He's given us religious terms or priestly terms like intercession, sanctification, and sacrifice, and offering. He's used economic and financial terms like redemption, ransom, bought, and purchased. And oh yes, He has chosen familial terms, family-related words, like adoption. And when we take that diamond of salvation and look at its different facets by these words that the Holy Spirit chose, it just opens up the doctrine of salvation into this fantastic, legal, economic, relational, familial description of what God's done for us. He just didn't throw us a lifeline when we were drowning in the sea of sin. He pulled us on board and adopted us and sanctified us and consecrated us, redeemed us, paid everything. There's no double jeopardy. Sacrificed His Son for us. It just goes on and on. The word we want tonight is satisfaction. And it's a legal and a forensic term. You want to think of a banker saying to you, you have satisfied the terms of the loan and the loan is paid in full. That means the loan's been satisfied. The bank's been satisfied. You want to think of a prison warden? You have satisfied all the claims of justice against, against you, and you're free to go. You want to think militarily? You've satisfied your service obligation, and you are hereby honorably discharged. Those, that's satisfaction. There's been an obligation that's been satisfied to someone who has the authority and the right to demand payment. And so we have the word satisfy. With reference to a debt or an obligation, it means to pay it off or discharge it fully, to liquidate a debt, to fulfill completely an obligation, to comply with the demand, to make compensation or reparation for a wrong or injury to someone, to atone for an offense, and so forth. We could go on with the words about being paid in full. Satisfaction is making a payment to completely cover and expunge a debt in full. We have a debt. We need that debt to be satisfied. Or that debt's going to be lingering out there in the universe, hanging over our heads. We need the one holding the debt to be satisfied. We incurred the debt. He's holding it. Satisfaction is suffering sufficient punishment to appease all claims against us and all wrath against us. Wrath is satisfied because the wrath was poured out. Obviously we'll get more to 
where and whom it was poured out upon shortly. Satisfaction is complying with all needed conditions to be restored to a full standing. How do you think you will satisfy a just and holy God for all the sins that He has against you? How will you satisfy divine justice? Look at Numbers chapter 35. Our verse that I don't want you to forget is Isaiah 53.11, but let's turn to Numbers 35. Isaiah 53.11, He shall see of the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. In Numbers 35, we have some rules given, some laws given in the law of Moses for the treatment of murderers. I begin at verse 30 of Numbers 35. Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. But one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. Moreover, ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer, which is guilty of death, but he shall be surely put to death. And ye shall take no satisfaction for him that is fled to the city of his refuge, that he should come again to dwell in the land until the death of the priest. So ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are, for blood it defileth the land. And the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Defile not therefore the land which ye shall inhabit, wherein I dwell, for I the Lord dwell among the children of Israel. Do you see the seriousness of this? The crime of murder can only be paid for one way. It can only be satisfied one way, and that is the blood of the murderer. There's no other satisfaction. In the Koran, there are amounts that can be paid to satisfy for the loss of a life. For murder, you can buy your way out of murder. But not in God's country. Not in God's nation. And, and what I want you to notice from this passage is not thinking about the capital crimes in America or how we punish them, but how the, it could not be satisfied but by one way because the Lord is very particular about murder. It can only be satisfied by the blood of the one committing murder. Now I know what you're thinking, that you've never committed murder in your life and you never would, but remember that the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, is opened up in Matthew chapter 5 right. to include being angry with your brother without a cause. Right. Without a just cause in God's sight. It's calling your brother a fool. It's having an offense against your brother and not taking care of it. And it's having bitterness in your heart and not forgiving your brother as we go through the epistles of the New Testament. Jesus applied the sixth commandment far past the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. But here I want you to notice that there was satisfaction only one way. You had to die. You couldn't buy your way out of it. You couldn't beg your way out of it. You couldn't make friends. You couldn't sell your farm and give it to the family of the one you had killed. You had to die. Look at Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. The doctrine of satisfaction. That God is satisfied for us. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. We shouldn't have any guilty fears as Christians. 
Because it's not God holding our sins over our heads. God has already applied our sins to the Lord Jesus Christ, imputed them to Him, and imputed His righteousness to us. Shake off our guilty fears. We want to arise and be happy in the Lord. The Lord's Supper is not to remember that sins are hanging over us. The Lord's Supper is to remember that all our sins have been put away. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning at 30. Men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. For jealousy is the rage of a man, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not regard any ransom, neither will he rest content, though thou givest many gifts. A couple of things here. First, the thief. He stole because he's hungry. But when he's found, it doesn't matter that he was hungry. He still has to make restitution four times what he stole, even if his balance sheet is four times what he stole. He shall give all his substance. It can't be satisfied any other way than restitution. But then it goes on to say, that is easy, simple, and understandable. But adultery is not. Adultery creates a situation where there can be no contentment. There is no rest. There is no ransom. Nothing can be done. Nothing can be paid to relieve the man who's been offended by having his wife messed with by another. And so it's describing that in verses 32 through 34, that a wound and dishonor is created, can't be wiped away. It's the rage of a man. He will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not regard ransom. And you can look at this ferocious warning that Solomon's giving his son about the danger of adultery. When we think on that particular example here, if you think you're not guilty of adultery, then remember what the Bible says about lust, looks, and thoughts. If you think you're not guilty of adultery, then remember how God defines worldliness. When he wrote the church, this is literal adultery of a man taking another man's wife. But remember how the Bible describes, if you are thinking upon a woman that you would like to have her in that capacity, it's the same to God. But in addition to that, our worldliness of flirting with the world is called adultery. It's called whoredom. Throughout the pages of Scripture, both Testaments, our flirting with the world is considered spiritual fornication. And so notice... And God is more jealous than any man has ever conceived of being jealous for His people. And when we play with the world, we've committed spiritual adultery. And the point I want to make is, notice the description of it. There's no way out of it. There's no way to satisfy it. Just like there wasn't for murder, there isn't for adultery. That's the definition of uh, satisfaction, and we need to move a little faster. Do you need to have your sins? Does God need to be satisfied for your sins? The holy God of creation created your father Adam and you in him, good and very good. But in willful rebellion and profane wickedness, he and you chose Satan's sin and death over God. 
He must punish you. He will punish you. And as we sing in one of our songs, His righteous law proves it well. You have earned the wages of sin, which is death, every day of your conscious life. For the wages of sin is death. How will you stop the paymaster, who is the living God, from giving what you requested and deserve? He's guaranteed by his personal integrity that sinning souls must die. When Israel mocked him about the ways the Lord are not equal, he said the ways the Lord are equal, and the soul that sinneth, it will die. It shall die. And he based his integrity upon it because they were calling in question his integrity. The Bible says about the attitude of God that he is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7 and verse 11. So we have this paymaster, this debt holder, and we are in debt to him. We're debtors to Almighty God and he holds the paper. He holds the mortgage on our lives and we need to have them satisfied. We have a great need. You are on a fast people mover, like at the airport, some airports, toward a destination of death and judgment. Hebrews 9.27 puts it this way, For it is a point unto men once to die, but after that, the judgment. We are rapidly approaching that. The people mover is under our feet right now, and while I stand and you sit, we are moving closer toward that time when we will meet God the judge of all. Is he satisfied? Has he been satisfied for his claims against us? There's nothing you can do about it. About your life and about the fact that you're on this fast people mover. You can't jump off. You can't slow it down. We would love to slow it down and push that down arrow. But we can't. God puts you on it. God started your life and he'll end it. Every day you ignore it, trying to make it go away, is one more sin on your part that you'll have to give an account for when you meet Him. He is the infinite Jehovah God, and you are finite. You cannot pay an infinite debt to an infinite holder of debt. Look at Luke chapter 12. We want to remind ourselves, and I know you know this, but we need to remind ourselves that we are not inherently good. That God does not love all His little children, meaning the entire 7.2 billion on earth. Luke chapter 12, look at how the Lord Jesus Christ would speak to His disciples. Verse 4, And I say unto you, my friends, Luke 12.4, Be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. As an aside for these verses, there is such a large movement in Christianity in America denying eternal torment. These verses teach us that there is something after death. They want to take the word hell, and I will grant them that in many places the word hell means grave. The word hell means death. Here, it does not mean that because it is something that can be done after death. Fear not them which kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. That is death and hell 
where hell means grave. But Jesus said, Fear him, which after he hath killed, hath power to cast both body and soul into hell, after killing the body. That isn't the grave. That's a place of torment that the rest of the Bible tells us about in detail. But notice here, what we want from the two verses is the fact that we have a need that God is angry with the wicked every day and we ought to fear Him in, in a penal way for our sins until we hear the Gospel. And we believe the Gospel and we obey the Gospel. We should fear God because after killing our bodies, He can cast our bodies and souls into hell. His holiness cannot be compromised, for it is totally contrary to His perfect nature to compromise His holiness. And your sinfulness on the other side cannot be slowed. It is totally consistent with your corrupt nature. So here we are with corrupt natures continuing to accumulate sins while He and His holiness cannot compromise simply to clear or acquit us. There is no payment that you can make. Psalm 49, what would it say, Adam? But Psalm 49 says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for his soul, for the redemption of his soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever. These are the warnings of the Word of God. We definitely have a need. But God made a payment for us. God made a payment for us. And so let's go back and look at Isaiah 53 and see those words again. God made a payment for us and He made the payment to Himself. You know, some are so ignorant about the Scriptures that they think God had to buy us back from the devil. We needed to be bought back from God Himself because it was God's justice and God's holiness that had us condemned. Then look at that Isaiah 53.11, He shall see of the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. That is God Almighty, the Holy One of Heaven, the Lord Jehovah, seeing the travail of Jesus Christ's soul and was satisfied by what He endured. But earlier, we saw in verse 5, He was wounded. Someone was wounded for our transgressions. A payment was being extracted from someone else for us. This is the Gospel. This is what we want to embrace. This is what we want to emphasize in our church. This is what our flesh cringes about the most. Our flesh does not want to hear about Jesus Christ. We want to overrule our flesh. And with our weak spirits, with our spirits that are willing, ask the Lord to strengthen us with might in our inner man. In that fifth verse, He was wounded. He was bruised. He was chastised. And He got the stripes. In verse 7, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. In verse 10, he was bruised. He was put to grief. Wow. Thank you, Lord. This is a transaction in the universe that the Hindus don't know about. Wait till I show you their beautiful holy men tomorrow that the Islam doesn't know about. This is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's far more than a prophet. He's far more than Muhammad. He's God Almighty, the Lord Jehovah in the flesh. He is the Son of God. He's our Savior and Lord. He is the blessed and only potentate. Even if those little guys with the fez hats and the small motorcycles and cars drive around calling themselves potentates, He is the blessed and only potentate. Our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He was oppressed and afflicted for your sins. Look at all those words that are right here in context for us to understand how God was satisfied. In verse 5, you have four. In verse 7, you have two, at least. In verse 10, you have a couple more. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this wonderful chapter of the Bible. And who was reading it and did not understand that Ethiopian eunuch was bouncing along? He feared the Lord. He had come to Jerusalem for to worship. And Philip asked, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? Is the prophet speaking of himself or some other man? Do you know how precious that moment would have been? To have that, have Isaiah 53 open in the chariot and to have the man say, Is the prophet speaking of himself or another man? Well, my dear eunuch, let me tell you a story about Jesus of Nazareth. And I've met him. I've seen him. I know about him. He's turned Jerusalem upside down, as you already know, coming from that city. And so it went. He preached Jesus to him. It says that very clearly. Look at that word travail in our 11th verse. He shall see of the travail of his soul. God saw the travail. Travail is bodily or mental labor or toil, especially of a painful or oppressive nature. It's trouble, it's hardships, it's suffering. The Bible uses the word travail most of the time when it is referring to the pangs of a woman's childbirth coming on her and that bearing down and it is now totally out of her control and she is having the pains in her loins and the pressure is mounting in those contractions. Sorry, Esther. Are taking over and it is called travail. Over and over, the pangs of childbirth coming on as travail. It's hard labor. It's painful labor. It's heavy exertion. All the women around you have done it. Some, many times. But that's the word. And he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. God, our Father in heaven, sees everything at a depth and breadth of understanding that is infinite to us. These words, I want them to be very special to you. He shall see. God sees us. He sees at a level that we can hardly understand. When the Bible says in Psalm 56 and verse 17, God sees all your tears and puts them in His bottle. And all your wanderings He writes in His book. There is nothing that happens to you. There is nothing you feel inside, outside, upside, downside. David in Psalm 139 described it as a matter where I go. The Lord sees me. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. He just went on and on for about 16 verses in Psalm 139 about God seeing, knowing every single thing about David. God knew every single thing about the Lord Jesus Christ and every bit of pain, anguish, shame, guilt that was upon Him on the cross of Calvary. And in that unjust trial leading up to it, the God of heaven saw it and saw it and it was mounting up. He was seeing the torment that His Son was going through for you and for me. And he was satisfied. He was satisfied. Thank you, Lord. There was not an ounce of pain, shame, trouble in Jesus Christ that God did not fully see. When we, when us husbands accompany our wives into a birthing center or the bedroom or a hospital when they're going to give birth, let's just be honest. Okay, guys? We really can't get into it. 
would you like me to go get you some pizza, honey? Do you want me to hold your hand? Because it's all on her. We, we, we don't really even know. We can say, from one to ten, what is it? Oh, that one was an eight. Then we hear nine. And we're wondering, what does a nine mean? Enough about that. There's a God in heaven that knew every... As Jesus told Peter to put up your sword, I could call 12 legions of angels. Shall I not drink this cup that God's given me? Every one of those choices, the weight upon Him, the mocking Him, the daring Him, the challenging Him, the buffeting Him in the face, it was mounting and mounting. Thank You, Heavenly Father. Thank You, Lord Jesus Christ. He did not spare His Son but delivered Him up for us all. He prepared Him a body for that suffering. One of my favorite, and I preached it uh, 11 years ago or 12 years ago, one of my favorite ways of approaching the death of Christ is the baptism in the cup of Christ. Jesus told James and John in Matthew chapter 20 and their mother, I have a baptism to be baptized with and a cup to drink that you don't know of you don't really know what it means to sit on my right hand and my left hand. And those expressions, I have a baptism to be baptized with, was describing his death. Baptism is to be immersed or plunged or dipped or pressed under or submerged under something going over you. And typically, baptism means water. And when you go back and you read through the Psalms, you read Psalms, some in prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ, some about David, where thy waves and thy billows have gone over me. Anyone, you know, some of you may have been caught in an undertow at a beach before and pulled under that water and felt the power of that water that could take you out to sea and thrashes you against that coming shoreline of sand. The waves and billows were going over the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was His baptism. He had already been baptized by John the Baptist when he said, I need to be, I have a baptism to be baptized with. He was speaking of His death when the waves and billows of God's wrath would roll over His soul. There would be a storm the likes of which we've never seen. And it was a spiritual storm that wrecked havoc on the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I have a cup to drink. And that cup is the cup of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And do you know what? He drank all of it. Peter, put up your sword. Shall I not drink the cup? He had just prayed a few hours earlier, Father, if there's a way for this cup to be taken from me, let it be taken from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And I want to tell you on the cross of Calvary, he drank, he drained. He shook down the dre- he shook the dregs. The Bible says he took the dregs, the, the bitter residue at the bottom of that cup, he took down. And when they offered him vinegar mixed with myrrh as a sedative, which was a practice of the Jews and the Romans to dull the pain in the spirit of Proverbs chapter 31, what did he do with it? He refused it. I will drink my Father's cup, not this sponge. Not this drink. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you love Him tonight. I hope you're thankful for Him. I hope when we take this little cup, this little cup, 
And we just throw down a little bit of precious wine. We eat a little bit of unleavened bread. The Lord Jesus Christ had His body torn asunder, and He drank the full cup of the wrath of Almighty God. When it says, He shall see of the travail of His soul, do you know what it's talking about? The Lord Jesus emptying that cup for you and me. Look at the results. Look at the text. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. God saw Jesus' pain and was satisfied for us. The payment had to be made to expunge our debt, so we're free in his holy sight. The punishment's been meted out to appease his holy wrath for our iniquities. Even with infinite knowledge, he could not see or find a further claim against us. He's satisfied. Jesus cried with a loud voice. Then He gave up the ghost. He gave up the ghost by saying, Father, into Thy hands I commend My Spirit. Do you know what He said when He cried with a loud voice? It is finished! Now, do you know how we often apply those words? And not incorrectly, but do you know how we apply those words? The work of redemption is complete. And that is correct. But may I add to that, may I add to that, my drinking of my Father's cup, my baptism by my Father, is finished. It is finished! And He gave up the ghost. Father, into Thy hands I commend my spirit. He made it through. He drank the dregs. I want us to remember both. I want us to remember that the work of redemption was complete. I want us to remember that He had finished the travail of His soul. And God the Father was satisfied. The results are that we're accepted in the Beloved as the sons of God. We are accepted in heaven. God accepts us right now. You know, this doctrine that we believe, Adam, this doctrine we believe is not us accepting Jesus to be saved. What's important is God accepting us in Jesus. That's the glorious doctrine of the gospel. We share it with you. And I know you love it. But let's all love it this evening and be reminded of it. The good news of the gospel and the glad tidings of good things. We've been atoned. We've been put at one again with God. We've been reconciled by Jesus Christ, and so forth and so on. Our religion is not one of terrors. When we hear the gospel that we are hearing right now, it gives us a good conscience. Our conscience is freed from the burden of our sins hanging upon us and thinking about taking our last breath, as I've seen several times in the last four years, and being before the presence of the Lord. We can shake off our guilty fears. He's satisfied. He has seen the travail of the substitute for our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is satisfied. Our religion is not of terror, it's of a good conscience. And that's what Adam did just a little while ago in those waters of baptism. He was saying, Almighty God, I justify you as being righteous and demanding a substitute for my wicked life. I repent of my sins, I believe, on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am buried in this water to rise again. Because of a good conscience. I have heard the gospel. I believe the gospel. And I want to show the gospel by the act of baptism. 
It's a wonderful thing to give the answer of a good conscience toward God. How do we have a good conscience? Because of verses like this right here and understanding them. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Oh, oh, it doesn't end there. Um, Very quickly, Psalm 22. I'm just about done. Psalm 22. I want to show you that with God satisfied, do you know what He is doing now? He wants to satisfy you and me. And it's, it's a little off track. It's a little off track of what I've just shown you with the definition of satisfaction, the need of satisfaction, the payment of satisfaction, the results of satisfaction. Here's this fruit of satisfaction. Now that God is satisfied and so reconciled to us that we are His sons and daughters, He wants to satisfy you with good things. Watch. And I've got a a large amount of verses. But just a couple. Psalm 22, verse 26. What is Psalm 22 about? But about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 26. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek Him. Your heart shall live forever. That is satisfaction coming to God's people from the God who is satisfied. Now that He's been satisfied, we are His beloved children, the brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to satisfy us. Chapter 36 and verse 8 of Psalms. Psalm 36, 8, They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. This is just too wonderful. What I, what I cannot stand about me and about you is our flesh and the world that drags us down and pulls us down so that this message does not come clearly through to your mind and your heart. And only the Holy Ghost can do that. It is not volume. It is not organization. It's not anecdotal stories. It's the Holy Spirit's got to do that work. And we need to pray for that in our church that we will be in love with the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything else. Not all the, not dotting all our I's and crossing all our T's as the first point. We want that underneath Christ, serving Him. Lord, help us. How about, can I, can I share one more? Isaiah 55? I know I can. May I? Isaiah 55. You were all very prompt in getting over here and getting this service started tonight. And I am not being very prompt in finishing it on time. Isaiah 55. Ho! Verse 1. Ho! Everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Brethren, every one of us go spend money for toys. Every one of us spend money for food. But those things do not satisfy us like the free gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're too busy, we're too distracted, we're too carnally minded to read a clause like Isaiah 53.11 and jump over our pulpit. 
He shall say of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And when you die and leave this world, here's what it's like if you believe this gospel and want to live by it. Here's a man who's already there in heaven. And he gave us this by the Holy Spirit. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. There's, I've watched some people under the power of morphine go out of this life asleep. We're going to be asleep one way or another. You're going to pass through that curtain. But we're going to awake in His likeness. And we're going to be satisfied because we're going to be clothed in His righteousness because He saw of the travail of His soul and was satisfied. Eric.